Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. immigrant is somebody leaving a country and an immigrant is somebody arriving in a country, but of course those are one and the same. So the same person is going to think of themselves as an immigrant or an immigrant, depending on context. Welcome to the Stratfor Podcast. I'm Emily Hawthorne. No matter where you live in this world, the terms migrant, refugee, asylum seeker, or immigrant have become part of a global lexicon, words used to describe one part of this century's vast human upheaval. Millions of people each year are moving from one place, perhaps due to war or environmental stress or political violence, to find another, and many may be forced to leave their homes. The collective experience of migration is now so great, nearly every nation on every continent on this planet has been affected. And yet each migration story is different. Dora Ahmed has recently edited The Penguin Book of Migration Literature, a new collection of stories that convey the intricacy of worldwide migration, the diversity of experiences, and perhaps what each may have in common. Dora Ahmed, thank you for speaking to the Stratfor podcast today. Thank you. So your publisher, Penguin Random House, calls this book the first global anthology of migration literature. What does that mean? So this anthology really comes out of my teaching, and I've been teaching postcolonial literature at St. John's University in Queens for about the last 15 years. I was actually the first person hired there who was teaching something in English other than British or American literature. So I was kind of charged with the entire rest of the world, which was really a fun and exciting thing to get a chance to do. And um, one of the classes that I taught frequently was postcolonial literature, literature of the formerly colonized world. And that class inevitably involves a lot of stories of migration, particularly people migrating to various places in Europe, to France, Germany, England. And I noticed that my students really connected with readings about migrants, especially in England. Um, Something like Zadie Smith's White Teeth felt very familiar to them as kids growing up in Queens, a lot of first-generation kids, kids who had perhaps immigrated themselves. And... From that class, I then started to work up a comparative migration literature class to kind of show that there are so many similarities across the migration experiences in the world. And looking out at what the available readings were, I noticed, and even um, looking at syllabi that other professors in the U.S. might use for immigrant literature, I noticed there are lots of collections that are either destination country specific. So you might get a collection of, for example, Australian immigrant literature or Canadian immigrant literature. And there are tons of collections of U.S. immigrant literature. And you can also find collections that are origin specific. So, for example, the South Asian diaspora or the Caribbean diaspora or the African diaspora. But what I didn't find any kind of collection that spoke to the fact that people are moving, as you said in your introduction, from all over the world to all over the world. So anything that that really had a global scope in terms of both where people were coming from and where people were going. And what I noticed in my teaching was that my students really responded to that 
the global scope of the readings that we were able to do in a semester. This book is broken into four parts, departures, arrivals, generations, and returns. Can you explain why you chose to arrange it this way? Sure, absolutely. So it's a funny thing putting an anthology together. You kind of want to stay in the background, but the decisions that you make as an anthologizer do shape how readers are going to experience the collection. So one of the things I could have done is gone alphabetically, which would really highlight the artist, the the writer, the person um, who created the literary work. I could have gone chronologically, which would emphasize more change over time. But since I really wanted to have readers thinking about the connections and the similarities among migration experiences across different places, I decided to group it by the phase in somebody's migration experience. And looking at the kind of typical immigration story, I think um, a lot of people think about it as something that starts when a migrating person arrives at a new place. But I actually wanted to start before that. And that was based on the readings that are in here, as well as talking to people in my family, talking to friends, that you really have to start with the decision to emigrate, which is in some cases not a decision, but a a fact of people being forced from their homes. So the whole first section is departures, which in some cases includes the decision not to leave someplace. That's um, in the case of Salman Rushdie's short story, Good Advice is Rarer Than Rubies. There's a character who kind of mulls over the possibilities and decides that she's actually happy where she is, which in her case is Pakistan. Um, The section on arrivals, uh, a lot of the pieces talk about that, the, the disappointments that a lot of migrants feel that they've been made certain promises and the promises don't come through. Um, I think another big part of the immigration experience is the experiences of kids of immigrants, the next generation. So the the third section is called generations. And then I felt a little bit uneasy with what I would say is almost a a developmentalist arc to the, the collection where people leave, arrive a new place, have kids, and that's the end of the story. So I added on a fourth section that's kind of a mini section called returns because That's always a possibility. And even if it doesn't physically happen, I think that's something that a lot of migrants are thinking about. And even the children of migrants are thinking about is, would I ever go back? What would it be like to go back? Is my home the same as I remembered it? So I wanted to kind of round it out and disrupt the structure a little bit as well. Yeah. And it it also is something that comes up a lot in the discourse on refugees right now with the Syrian refugee crisis. People talk a lot about, well, couldn't they return back to Syria and there's sort of a whole host of complicated answers as to why they cannot in many cases and, and why so many of them, of, of course, they do want to return, but there are but there are barriers to their actual physical return. Virtual homelands, there are remittances, people sending money home. There are people Skyping and calling with family members. So I think the returns, it's a fuzzy category and it's an important category. Yeah. And in your introduction to the collection, you wrote that the Quote, official discourses of migration employ deceptively discrete categories, economic migration, refugee, asylum seeker, expatriate, student, stateless person, trafficking victim, that in reality overlap and blur. So could you expound on what you mean by that overlap and blur? Sure. So I think even from the terms emigrant and immigrant and migrant at the beginning, like the most basic terms... We have an emigrant is somebody leaving a country and an immigrant is somebody arriving in a country. But of course, those are one and the same. So the same person is going to think of themselves as an emigrant or an immigrant, depending on context. 
Um, you could have somebody who's a refugee as well as a trafficking victim. You could have somebody who's applying for a certain status because that's strategically going to be the most effective, but they identify with a, a different category, maybe more strongly. You could have somebody who was undocumented at one point but receives amnesty. Um, and then even the generational terms are fuzzy. So we have first generation and second generation, but sociologists don't even agree on whether first generation refers to immigrants or the children of immigrants. And then you have this kind of in-between. So you have people like the dreamers who maybe came over as children. And even that, sociologists and demographers might refer to that as a 0.5 generation or a 1.5 generation, but the experience of a two-year-old is going to be really different from a 17-year-old. So that's really fuzzy. Um, you could have somebody who comes over for half the year and then goes home. Um, the documentary, The Other Side of Immigration, profiles a lot of families who do that between Mexico and the U.S. who come in for seasonal work. So that's that's going to be another fuzzy category. Um, you have people living on changing borderlands, Ethiopia and Eritrea, India and Pakistan. Um, so what exactly is that going to be considered? You can, you can migrate without even leaving a place if, um, if your state's borders change. There are just thousands of specific circumstances that defy categorization. And that's why I love literature. I think all of these literary sources mess with the categories and challenge the categories. I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst with Stratfor, and I'm speaking to Dora Ahmed, who has edited the Penguin Book of Migration Literature. We'll be right back. The Penguin Book of Migration Literature describes the story of a global phenomenon. You know, there's a way to get ahead of the story, no matter where it's happening. As the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform, Stratfor brings global events like these and others into a perspective that you can put to work, helping you and your colleagues navigate through an increasingly complex international environment. Our premium publication, Stratfor Worldview, is filled with easy-to-read, deep-dive analysis on geopolitical topics from war to economies to the environment to politics and more. Understand the why behind what's happening now because what happens next is up to you. Subscribe today at stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now, back to the studio. Welcome back. I'm Emily Hawthorne, and I'm speaking to Dora Ahmed, who has edited the Penguin Book of Migration Literature. So who has contributed to this collection, and did you find yourself collecting the writers or the pieces of writing? So I didn't commission anything new. These are all previously published pieces that I had a chance to um, test out with my students. So these are all um, things that I selected from uh, really, I guess, about 300 years worth of texts. So I wanted to start off with the Atlantic slave trade, which isn't conventionally considered as immigrant literature, but I felt like it was one of the most world-defining involuntary migrations that we've collectively experienced. So I have some selections for a, a piece of Alada Equiano's autobiography and a Phyllis Wheatley poem. Those are the two earliest pieces. And then it goes all the way up through about a year or two ago. Um, and then I also included a selection, uh, suggestions for further reading and viewing at the back of the book, because I found I just kept changing my mind. I kept adding on more and more and more. Every time I went into a bookstore while I was putting the collection together, I would run into 10 more titles. Every time I talked to somebody about it, I'd get 10 more amazing recommendations. 
So really, there's more beautiful writing on migration being published literally every week. Um, so I'm, I'm expanding the list of suggested further readings online and asking people to contribute to it because it's, it never ends. So do you have a personal favorite? I know that's almost a taboo question, <laughs> um, but you mentioned that your students really respond to some of the texts um, that are set in Britain. Um, I responded emotionally to several of them, but but the story by Jamila Ibrahim about Omar and Sara and Canada and the love story across Syria and Dubai and uh, Ethiopia was was really a profound story that has stayed with me. Are are there any of these stories that that you find yourself returning to again and again, or is are are they all sort of your favorite? Yeah, I would have to say they are. I'm so glad you like that one. But I think what my favorite is depends on the circumstance and what purpose I'm hoping that it'll serve. And I think a lot of these stories really produce empathy in readers. I've been hearing back from a lot of people who are really strongly affected by Edwige Dantica's story, Children of the Sea. Um, I'm also going around and doing little workshops. And in those cases, if I'm trying to kind of squeeze the arc I described of departures arrivals, generations, returns. If I'm trying to kind of squish that into an hour, then I turn to poetry. And Warson Shire's poem, Home, Claude McKay's poem, Tropics in New York, and Tato Laviera's poem, American, really encapsulate the departures, arrivals, and generations. So I feel very grateful to those poets for kind of squishing into a page or two, or even in the case of McKay's poem, 12 Lines, all of these feelings and sensations of migration. So I think it really depends on the situation. I, I love the one that you mentioned because I think that the, there's a counterpoint between two stories and one is a more privileged migration and one is a more desperate migration. And I think that's a really important counterpoint or conversation. Um, I ended up, when you asked about the structure of the, of the anthology, I ended up just using one short story to encapsulate the whole section on returns because it's just, it's so well done. It really, again, um, because of having a counterpoint between two voices, similarly to Children of the Sea and similarly to the Jamila Ibrahim short story that you mentioned, um, it covers two different points of view. So it's a, a husband and a wife having a debate on whether they should move back from the U.S. to Egypt and one character feels very strongly that they should stay in the U.S., and one character really wants to move back to Egypt. Um, so if if the returns idea is what I get want to get across, that's the perfect short story for my purposes. So I just really feel grateful to all these different writers for each providing a different perspective, or even in a lot of cases, a whole different set of perspectives. Yeah, and that story really drove home this sort of underlying theme of, of hope and that things will be better in the future. Um and even sort of at the end, uh, so to speak, of their experience of migration, um, it was sort of like, no, there's always everyone has hope for something better and different to come. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was a very powerful conclusion. Yeah. What do you think is the value of this anthology right now? I was really struck because I was reading it on an airplane a few weeks ago. And um, I won't name the book that the gentleman was reading next to me, but it was a book that was sort of about closing down borders and, and sort of the, the idea behind that. Um, and I was really struck by the juxtaposition of reading this, your anthology and, and the gentleman next to me. Um, and we're both sort of reading about 
a similar topic, but from very, very different perspectives. And it, and it just made me think, is, is there something right now uh, where this anthology is, is, is really valuable? Or is this a really timeless question? I think the answer is both. I think it is a timeless question. It's, it's a question of at least the last 500 years and also the last millennia, but it's also a very timely question. Uh, I've had so many people write to me and use the word necessary. This is such a necessary anthology right now. And it makes me sad how much that's true. And it makes me sad that I think the central message that needed to come across from the anthology is simply migrants are human beings. And it just, we shouldn't have to convey that message. That should be obvious. Um, but the, the process of humanizing people who are talked about in such demeaning and dehumanizing ways as criminals, as illegal, I think all of these stories and poems just really insist on the ambiguity, the complexity in a lot of cases, the involuntary nature of, of people's migration experience. For me, it was really interesting that the class that the anthology is based on, I taught it once in 2014 and once in 2017, and the tone of the class was so different each time. So the first time, I think there were political realities that I was just ignoring. I wasn't thinking about family detentions at the border and um, deportations from cities so the situation wasn't as rosy as I was making it out to be, but my class and I experienced the readings as kind of happy, feel-good, like, yay, <laughs> immigrants, we get the job done, in the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda's song. And then teaching it a second time through post-2016 just had a really different tenor, a reactive tenor, a defensive tenor, a sad um, I think in 2014, it, it didn't feel like a job to humanize migrants. It felt like something obvious. Um, and the second time around, we all felt like more people needed to read these selections, not in a celebratory vein, but just in a, an explanatory vein. I, I wanted to ask about the uh, limitations or opportunities of, of teaching these texts from translations. Um, I noticed that in the poem by Dunya Mikhail, um, which was translated out of Arabic, um, there was uh, one sort of meaning that you could draw from from a couple of the lines about if you remove the R sound from the word for war, it becomes the word for love. And um, and having studied Arabic, I thought, oh, that's such a neat, neat uh, literary uh, example. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you didn't know the Arabic words for war and for love, and that there's just one a uh, small sound difference between them, you might not have picked that up. But and I thought, and it made me think about all the texts that are in this anthology that are translated. And I, it just made me think of the enormity of, of, of some of the meanings I might be missing, um, by not knowing sort of the original language that they were in. How do you how do you grapple with that as a teacher of literature and and with this anthology in particular? Sure. So my training is as an expert in Anglophone literatures. So my my teaching and my scholarship tend to skew towards uh, pieces that were originally written in English. And that's in part because so much of what I do in class is really go line by line in the way that you were describing in a way that you can only do if you have access to all the languages that are relevant. Um, so the translated pieces in here are a minority, and there's a way in which the collection would have been more global if I included more pieces in translation. 
but these were the pieces that I had a chance to test out with my students that I felt really worked line by line for English language readers. Um, so because of that, there are a lot of pathways that aren't covered in the book. And that's something that I talk about in the introduction, also just, just based on size limitations. So for example, some of the biggest migration corridors, I don't have anything about Ukrainians in Russia or vice versa. Um, I don't have anything about Botswanans in South Africa. I don't have anything about Bolivians in Spain, um, Angolans in Portugal. So there were a lot of specific migration pathways that aren't covered because I was focusing on Anglophone literature. Um, the pieces that are included here in translation, I think just really work and I'm sure there would have been hundreds of others um, it's kind of just a function of where my teaching was and where my expertise was so I mean I would love for this to be the first but not the last global migration anthology and to see more with more pieces in translation I'd love to see one in French um, I'd love to see one in Spanish I think there are a lot of different directions to go and, and that's why I'm really enjoying continuing to compile the suggestions for further reading I've been so surprised and happy with people's responses to this collection it was something that was really joyous and satisfying for me to work on, but I didn't quite realize how resonant it was going to be for readers and how many people were waiting to, to put these stories into conversation with each other and to have them all together. Dora Ahmed is the editor of the Penguin Book of Migration Literature, a collection of stories about migration and the reasons for it. Thank you for speaking to me today. Thank you. We'll have links to the Penguin Book of Migration Literature in the notes section of this podcast. And don't forget, if you're not reading Stratfor Worldview, we make it easy to check it out for free. Sign up for our newsletter at stratfor.com slash newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>